Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, what a wonderful reminder to sing these words, to hear these words of prayer, to hear and to have our eyes be set upon the great truths of your scripture, the God who promises, the God who is faithful, the God who has said and will do. And we are so fortunate to be those upon whom the ends of the ages have come, to be those who can look back on the glorious work that you've accomplished in your son, a work and a person and a circumstance that the prophets and the people of Israel, the faithful of old, only had the faintest glimmer of. They could not really see clearly what it is that you would do. But we have graciously been given to see the glory of our God, the glory of our Father in the face of Christ. And yet, just like them, we too must live in faith. We too must live in hope. Hope of the day when the God that we know, the God who has fully made himself known in the person and the work of the Messiah, when that God will finally sum up everything in the heavens and the earth in the Messiah. And in that day, we will know as we are fully known. In that day, we will see not just with the eyes of faith, but we will see in person this one who is the glory of the living God. Father, help us to be a people who do indeed bring the future into the present, who order our thoughts, our days, our affections, our zeal, our labors, not just by what meets our gaze, but by the God who is working to accomplish in fullness all of his good purpose May we live in view of the destiny for which we've been appointed, into which we've been called. And may we serve with that view in mind. As Paul said, forgetting what lies behind and stretching out our necks as runners running our race, stretching out towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of our God in Christ Jesus. May we be such ones. 
We ask all these things, Father, in the name of Christ our Lord. And we pray now that even as we return to this epistle to the Hebrews, that you will enable us to be as the readers that received it in the first century, that we would hear its words, that we would own its words, that we would be changed by them. Even as you led this writer with a great burden of love and devotion to set these things in front of these saints. May we receive it as he intended them to receive it. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, we come to the end of chapter 12 of Hebrews today. And I've mentioned before, and hopefully we've seen this throughout the epistle, that the writer kind of follows this general pattern of instructing and then drawing out the implications, or at least some implications from his instruction in the form of exhortations in view of the things that I have told you. Here is how you ought to think. Here is what you ought to do. Exhortations in the positive sense and also warnings. The negative consequence of failing to heed, failing to profit from the instruction. And so in general, this epistle, the writer has been writing to remind his readers of the truth of this one that they have embraced. Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet whom they embraced as Israel's Messiah, what it is that God has accomplished in him, and what that truth requires of them, and the consequences of neglecting that truth. And the same is true in the present context, which really is all of chapter 11 and chapter 12. This writer has reminded his Jewish readers his Jewish Christian readers, of their own heritage of faith. All the way back from Abel, the first man who he deals with as a man of faith, all the way up to the culmination of the heritage of faithful that is in Jesus himself, the preeminent quintessential man of faith. And in view of that heritage of faith, he exhorted them to run their own race, just as those who went before ran their race of faith, as Jesus ran his race of faith, even to the point of enduring the cross. They need to run their own race of faith also with discernment and with perseverance, understanding what has actually come in the Messiah, what God has accomplished in him. And what it means for them to be sharers in that accomplishment. And ultimately the destiny that it has granted to them. I say it a lot, but it's, it's worth repeating again. The question that we must always be asking, not just of ourselves, but of those who claim the name of Christ, is what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live the Christian life? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus of Nazareth? And I think too often people are not able to give a very clear or even a very biblical answer to that question. But the writer is again reminding his readers, essentially, don't you know who you are? You've embraced this one 
this prophet of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, in view of his resurrection, you have embraced him as the Messiah. What does that really mean to have embraced him in that way? What does it really mean that he is the Messiah? What does it mean to faithfully follow him as disciples? Jesus' accomplishment has, uh, and, and the embrace of him in terms of his accomplishment, has huge implications, positively and negatively, to own and to live out the truth as it is in him. Not as we imagine it, not as we would like it, not as we prefer it, but the truth as it is in him. And hence the writer ends with this blended exhortation warning by which he concludes this context. And that's verses 25 through 29 uh, of chapter 12, and I'll read that with you now. Turn to that if you have your Bibles with you. And again, recall that this is actually the climax, the climactic uh, exhortation, the climactic charge of the, the writer to his readers in view of all that he has said, certainly in this context, beginning at the beginning of chapter 11 concerning faith and what it is to live a life of faith. He says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we who turn away from him who now speaks from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I've titled this Gratitude as the Spur to Faithfulness, and I was trying to find a better way to put that because the relationship between gratitude and faithfulness is much more comprehensive and much more intense even than that idea. But, but gratitude is fundamental, and as well, it's not just an incentive to faithfulness, it's absolutely essential to it. It's absolutely foundational to faithfulness. People can persevere as religionists, they can persevere in some sort of religious practice or some sort of, uh, you know, spiritual life. But to really persevere in the way that the writer is speaking, to be those who persevere in faithfulness, gratitude has to be the very foundation of that. And I think that's why the writer ends on that high point. So I want to treat this in terms of the, just these two parts. First of all, his general warning about turning away, and then ultimately how that uh, uh, lays the foundation for this exhortation to gratitude and what it is to be a grateful people. Well, his exhortation slash warning is simply this. See to it that you don't refuse him who is speaking. Not him who spoke, him who is speaking. See to it that you don't refuse him who is speaking. 
And in terms of the way he constructs this grammatically, what he's really saying is this. Be absolutely, diligently watchful, mindful that you don't lose sight of or in any way denigrate or disregard the one who is speaking, the one who continues to speak. That refusal, as he says, involves a turning away. It may not be someone who says, I don't want to hear God, I don't want to hear what he has to say. It can be the subtlety of a disregard, a turning aside, a distraction. And in the case of his readers, it was very much a matter of a distraction. But this turning away from him who speaks is turning away from the message that God is speaking. The NAS says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. It's not really warning per se. It's the idea of instruction. The one who instructed on the earth is instructing from heaven. And his warning is this, that those who turn away will not escape him. He says, this is to be the the manner of your life, this watchfulness. Not think about it once in a while, but the orientation of your life is to be careful that you don't find yourself turning away for whatever reason may happen to cause that. See to it as a pattern of life. See to it as a pattern of life. And in the way in which he's treating it here with these readers, he says, see to it that now, especially in light of what I have brought to bear, that you don't find yourself beginning to turn away, even if you haven't to this point. This is something that you have to guard against going forward. And he uses this this reasoning common in, in Jewish argumentation, this a fortiori, if this, how much more that, that kind of, of logic, that kind of reasoning. He says, those who refused the one who spoke to them on earth didn't escape his notice and his judgment. Those who heard this one who spoke on the earth and refused it, turned away in whatever sense, didn't escape his notice and his judgment. Much less than we, and it's interesting and I think important that he includes himself in this exhortation and warning. He's not saying this applies to you, but I'm okay. I don't have to worry about this. I'm the great epistle writer. I'm the mature guy. I don't have to think about this. I don't have to be concerned. I don't have to be disciplined. I don't have to be diligent. He includes himself with them, I think, both by way of showing his solidarity with them, but also reinforcing that this is a universal issue for all of those who claim the name of Christ. If those who heard on the earth did not escape, how much less we who refuse the one who speaks from heaven. Well, who, who, is, who are these references? Is it one reference, two reference? Who's the one speaking? 
And some say, well, the one who spoke on the earth was Moses. Some say it was Yahweh. I think, again, when you, you understand he's dealt with this thing of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, two places of interaction, two realms of interaction between God and, and, and people. I think that the idea is Yahweh who spoke to them at Mount Zion. Some say then the one who speaks from heaven should now be viewed as Christ rather than Yahweh, so you have two separate reference. But I think really what the writer of Hebrews would say, based on the way he treats this throughout his epistle, is that it is the one and same Yahweh who spoke on the earth and who speaks from heaven. But Yahweh now speaks in his Son. Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate one in the scriptures view of things, is the Yahweh who promised to arise and to come and to put all things right. And I've used this before many times. The great proof, you know, people want to say, well, you know, the deity of Jesus, where's the verse that proves his deity? But really the way in which the Gospels treat that question is by saying he is himself Yahweh returned to Zion. Because the prophet said that the forerunner would come and prepare the way of Yahweh to come and to do this mighty work. And we see in the Gospels that the forerunner is John the Baptist, And his heralding of Yahweh's return to Zion is his announcing of the Messiah. And Jesus himself, and certainly this is true throughout John's gospel, if you see me, you see the Father. I am the truth of the Father. Not just deity in some sort of abstract sense, but I am the truth, the fullness, the full disclosure of the God who has made himself known to Israel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? Think again of John's prologue. In the beginning was the Logos. The Logos was with God. It was God. He was with God in the beginning. So I think he's saying that the Lord, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who spoke at Sinai, is the one who is now speaking from heaven but as Yahweh has in his own way become yes and amen in the Messiah. God has made himself fully known in the Messiah. And by incarnation, God has now, in a sense, become fully realized in his own self-appointed destiny in the humanizing of himself as the second person of the Trinity, as we refer to him, has become the God-man. God has forever become humanized in the Messiah. And in its Yahweh, in that completed, consummate way, who speaks now from heaven. That manner of speaking began, as I said, with the incarnation, in, not just in, in Jesus' words, but in his person, in his works. When you see him, when you hear him, when you observe him, when you see what he does, you're seeing the truth of the Father. When they found fault with Jesus and said, you're doing this, you're breaking the Sabbath, you're doing this. He said, when you see me working, you see the Father working. If I'm a Sabbath breaker, the Father is a Sabbath breaker. And it continues through his cross into his resurrection, his exaltation and enthronement. Jesus now speaks 
as the, at the right hand of the majesty on high as the sum of all truth. Torah came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus, the Messiah. So it's the triumph of his life, his death, his resurrection, and his enthronement. Those things are God's climactic word to man. The, the pre-incarnate logos, the disclosure of the truth of God has now become fully realized in the person, the work of the Messiah. He is God's full climactic final word to man. And that is a powerful, inescapable, and compelling message that sounds throughout the whole world and obligates hearers to bind themselves to the truth. If you will, the great evangelistic call is, who do you say that I am? What will you do with Jesus? The condemnation of the last day is not, did Jesus die for my sins or did he not die for my sins? It's, have you embraced him? Have you become a human being as the Father intends by finding that authentic, true, full humanity, humanness in Jesus himself. And as the apostles went out and about, that's what they said. Here is what binds you. God, before the coming of the Messiah, allowed the nations to go their own way. It's not that he left himself without witness, but he let the nations go their own way. And for the most part, he dealt with the world uh, through their connection with Israel. But now, but now, the truth of the Messiah is going out into all the world such that all men are obligated to repent and to embrace him. To rethink everything in the light of Jesus the Messiah, just as Paul had to rethink everything in the light of Jesus the Messiah. That's how this a fortiori argument works. He's saying, again, to a Jewish audience, your Israelite forefathers, you know this, they heard Yahweh speak to them from Mount Sinai. And he says they turned away from him in his words. The Hebrew idea of word, davar, it means more than just a sound or a a, a visual symbol on a page. Word in Hebrew reckoning has two Uh, significances, two aspects, an actual event or thing, something that actually exists, and the meaning of that thing. It means both. So even the idea of words in plural, devarim, uh, is often synonymous and rendered in, in the Hebrew scriptures, history. Because event, thing, and meaning is what history is all about. When the writer says that they didn't listen to him who was speaking, it's not just that they said, we we don't care what you have to say. It was an actual rejection of the truth, the meaning of what it was that God was communicating. Word as event and thing in inner meaning. The Decalogue is the ten words. If you read in the Hebrew scriptures, the Decalogue is the ten commandments are the ten words. 
10 words. And yes, at Sinai, and I think this is important, Israel, in a sense, refused to hear. I don't think this is just what the writer had in mind. But we saw last time they refused to hear out of fear. They said, we cannot hear God. It was too terrifying. You, Moses, you go listen to him, and then you come and tell us what he says. So it wasn't some sort of flagrant disregard or refusal to hear God because they didn't care about him or want to follow him. They were so terrified, they said, we can't bear this word. If we hear it, we'll die. But as I said last time, that fear was grounded in the fact of the fundamental alienation between them and God. God gathers his sons to himself to enter into a covenant with them at Sinai as father to sons, and yet he says, stay away from me. If you come near me, you'll die. And that fundamental alienation between them really is the 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 way in which this refusal to hear fleshed itself throughout their generations and if you know the old testament scriptures at all you know that throughout their generations the prophets keep saying god has sent me but you won't listen god has sent me but you don't hear these are a, a wayward people sons i've reared but they don't listen to me An ox knows its master, a donkey knows its manger, but my sons don't know me. I've chastened them, I've disciplined them, I've done everything I can. There's no part of them that hasn't been, in a sense, uh, bruised by my chastening, and yet they still don't listen. They still will not listen. They persisted in turning away from the God who continued to speak to them through his covenant, through his prophets, through his actions, through the things that they endured. And the writer says, in the face of all of that, Yahweh wasn't oblivious or indifferent to their refusal to hear him. And we know that. His words and his works are truth, and all who depart from the truth will meet the fate that comes to falseness. Refusal of the truth brings inherent consequences. What you see, even at the first instance of the fall, was in the day they eat of it, they will die. God didn't say in the day they eat of it, I'll kill them. In the day they eat of it, they'll die. Well, what's the point? When man, who is the image son, the image bearer, determines to define himself in such a way that he becomes the point of reference in his thinking, in his reasoning, in his judging, and in his acting. He has now defined himself in a way that is contrary to the truth. And in that false definition, he inherently dies. He dies to the truth of himself. That day didn't see the end of Adam and Eve's heartbeat. It saw the death of them as image children as God created them to be. And the promise of God is life out of death, life out of death, life out of death. I will restore this. So deviation from the truth, that's what sin is all about. We talked about that before. It's deviation from the truth. Sin isn't immorality in the first instance. It can express itself in immorality, but sin is deviation from the truth even in the name of morality, in the name of religion, in the name of godliness. 
but deviation from the truth is the embrace of falseness, and it always comes with a consequence. You can deny the existence of gravity and, and jump off a 10-story building, but gravity's going to have the last word, right? Well, that was the case for the people of Israel, the writer says, to whom Yahweh, by, and the writer's already said this in the opening of the epistle, God spoke in those times in portions and various ways. He has now in these days begun to speak in son, an entirely different entity, an entirely different manner of speaking, speaking in son, who is the exact representation of his nature, his image and likeness, the one in whom we see the truth of God. Well, if those who refused God when he was speaking in portions and in various ways, in a progressive, developing, incomplete, shadowy way, how much more then, here's his point, how much more then is that going to be the case for those who have heard the fullness of God's message, God's instruction, God's truth, God's Torah, if you will, in witnessing Jesus the Messiah? How much more... Will God take notice of that refusal? How much less will they escape when they refuse the Son who is God's full disclosure of himself, his purpose, his will, his work? And again, I, I direct you back to John's gospel because this is central to, you know, each gospel writer has his own emphasis and, and things that they kind of target. And John is very much oriented, among a couple other things, to this thing of when you see Jesus, you see the truth of God. He begins that way in his prologue. And even at the climax where Jesus is standing before Pilate, or before, um, yeah, Pilate you, you have two ideas of truth and kingship and world and life and kingdom standing side by side. And Pilate says, what's this about you having a kingdom? Are you a king? And Jesus says effectively, yes, but you don't understand what kind of a king I am. You don't understand the nature of my kingdom. I am a king, it is as you say, but I'm not a threat to Caesar in the sense that you think. Because what you understand the truth to be is not the truth as it actually is. I am a king and I have a kingdom, but my kingdom is not from this world. It does not originate in this world. It doesn't look like this world. It pertains to this world. It will grasp this world, but it is not a worldly kingdom in the way that all human beings know and experience. He says, but I am a king. I came into the world to testify to the truth. I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Have you been so long among me and yet you still don't see the Father? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So in the writer's contrast between the lesser and the greater, here's kind of my summary point with that. He's not contrasting a word that spoke on the earth that people refused that brought a consequence. Here's a word out of heaven. You refuse that. Oh, that's going to have a much greater consequence because it's come out of heaven. It didn't come on the earth. It's come out of heaven. 
It's not a contrast between earth and heaven in that way. Again, it's more the Mount Sinai, Mount Zion idea that we saw before. The contrast is this. It's between God's speaking to men, God's communication, his self-communication in the time of preparation versus his full consummate communication of himself now in the living glorified word. That's the less and the more. The time of preparation when God spoke and what has come in the Messiah. Hence again the contrast between Sinai and between Mount Zion. But the writer says not only did God speak then and is he now speaking, but he says God's speaking also holds forth a promise. At Sinai, when God spoke, it shook the earth. And and here he doesn't mention Sinai. Verse 26, his voice shook the earth then. But if you go back and you look at Exodus 19 and other commentaries in Israel's scriptures on the Sinai episode, the, the earth shook at that time when God appeared to the people on Sinai and gave them the covenant. And that's what he's talking about. The one who spoke on the earth, the earth shook at that time. And he says, but God has promised now another shaking, but a greater shaking, a cosmic shaking. Not just the shaking of a mountain in the land of Israel, but a cosmic shaking. And the language here is day of Yahweh language. And, and, and by that, I mean the, this theme of the day of the Lord uh, deals with two aspects of God arising. He arises to judge and to restore. And the judgment is unto restoration. Yahweh will return and he will conquer his enemies and he will overthrow everything that contradicts and opposes and he will liberate the captives and he will gather them in and he will renew and he will restore his creation and reestablish his sanctuary so that all the nations can come and be with him in that way. That's the language of the prophets concerning the day of the Lord. It has both the idea of retribution against that which contradicts, but ultimately to the end of the restoring of all things as God intended them to be. And this, I think, reflects that, but it also closely parallels uh, the language in in the prophecy in Haggai chapter 2. If you'd like to turn to that, just very quickly, this is a part of that same thing that uh, Colin has been talking about in Sunday school of just It's so important to read the scripture in its own historical and salvation historical context. And Haggai was one of the post-exile prophets in the sense that he, Zechariah, and Malachi lived and prophesied during the time after the exiles had begun to return from Babylon. And Haggai and Zechariah are exact contemporaries. And at the center of their circumstance in the context of their prophetic message is the rebuilding of the temple. Cyrus allows the people to return and to rebuild the city and the temple. And they rebuild the temple first. The city comes later. 
but they rebuild the temple first from 520 to 516 is when BC is when they're really working on it and rebuilding. And there's interruptions at first and you can read the whole story. But that's when Haggai and Zechariah are prophesying. And as they're rebuilding this temple, Solomon's temple had been torn to the ground, burned to the ground by the Babylonians. And now they're rebuilding a sanctuary in Jerusalem. And it just seems like a futile work. This new temple seems like nothing in comparison. And the people are discouraged. And it's in that context that Haggai speaks. Chapter 2, verse 1, on the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people who have returned to Jerusalem. And he says, Who's left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? The temple was destroyed in 586. It's nearly 70 years later. There are some, but not many, who remember the former temple. Those of you who remember the former temple in its glory, how do you see it now? How do you see this temple that you're building now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares Yahweh, and work, for I am with you. Continue this labor. Don't get discouraged. Continue building, says the Lord of hosts. Yahweh Sivaoth, the Lord of the hosts of Israel and the hosts of, of heaven, the God of armies, the God of might, the God of power. And you can read a similar thing in Zechariah's context of not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. How will this house be built? As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst still to this day. Do not fear. For thus says Yahweh Tzivaoth, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the dry land. There's that language. And I will shake all the nations, and here's the way it actually reads, and the precious value of the nations will come in, will be gathered in. I'm going to shake the earth, the heavens, the sea, the dry land. I'm going to shake the world in order to gather in the precious value of the nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver's mine, the gold is mine, declares Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. This is a title of power, a title of might, a title of, of resource to triumph. The latter glory of this house, actually, though it seems like nothing now, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord of hosts. How so? Because in this place I shall give peace. And you see in Malachi, again, who comes a little bit later, but, and, and you see this in Zechariah particularly, that this glory of this latter house, this temple that they're building there, is going to be associated with the coming of the Messiah. The promise in Malachi is that the messenger, the angel of the covenant will come. The Lord himself will suddenly come to his temple. Even the 
messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, he will come. And in Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 6, it's as the enthroned high priest that he builds his house, and he builds it by gathering in the nations, very much the language that Peter picks up on later, right? And that Paul understands. That Yahweh's great, everlasting, final, glorious sanctuary is founded on the Messiah. It has its substance in him, but its superstructure is made up of all of those who are living stones in him. Paul says we have become, and, and, and the world is becoming, as people are gathered in, the dwelling of God in the Spirit. That's what Haggai is getting at here, and I think that's the closest reference that the writer is drawing from when he says, God has promised a day when he will again shake the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the dry land. So I don't think he, the writer is tying this specifically to any text, you know, even though it says God has promised saying yet once more I will shake. I don't think he's citing a particular verse. He's citing this overall instruction of the scriptures that God will arise and do this great work, a shaking, a cosmic work, a cosmic work by which he will accomplish this purpose. A a promise throughout Israel's history and Israel's scriptures. The promise that Yahweh will shake the earth and the heavens to banish the curse, cleanse, renew, restore his creation. And that promise was fulfilled in Jesus' life and triumph. As I said, his coming and his work was Yahweh's return to Zion, the day when God arose to do this mighty work, Yahweh's Siva oath, the God of armies, the God of power, the God of might, when he arose to judge his enemies, deliver his people, renew, restore, reestablish the covenant, restore his own dwelling place. And so the writer is saying the Lord shook the earth at Sinai, but he shook both earth and heaven in this cosmic battle in the Messiah when he conquered the satanic power, when he conquered the curse, when he conquered death, when he renewed the covenant, when he restored the earth, his own dwelling place back in the earth. That's the shaking that Haggai is specifically talking about. But you say, but the writer says, and writing much after the time of Haggai and after the time of the Messiah, the Messiah's ascension, he says, yet once more. So how could this all have been fully realized in the Messiah and the messianic work, which is what Haggai was talking about? And the answer is, it hasn't been fully realized in the sense of already, but not yet. In other words, the cosmic shaking, the cosmic cataclysm that was was, uh, associated with uh, and fulfilled in relation to the Christ event, the coming of the Messiah, the incarnation, his life, his work, his death, his resurrection, his triumph, that itself sees a final manifestation that is yet to come. There does remain a future final counterpart to that cosmic shaking, that cosmic cataclysm in which God's creational renewal will finally be fully accomplished. This is Romans 8. 
And we, if we see it even with respect to ourselves. I say it again all the time. Paul is very clear that already if we are Christians in truth, if we are in the Messiah, we are already raised up in him. We are already seated in the heavenly places in him. We are already those who inhabit the realm that God himself inhabits. We are, as it were, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high in the Messiah. And yet, our bodies are headed for the grave. But Paul says that that renewal of the inner man and that transformation that is working itself out day by day, the outer man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. That inner renewal and that, that, that constant work of transforming us into the likeness of Christ by the Spirit is the sure promise of the resurrection of the last day. That our bodies, too, will share in this renewal. Because God didn't create us to be disembodied spirits floating around in a place called heaven. We are, as humans, body and spirit. And just as Jesus' new creational life was body and spirit, so ours is just as well. In fact, it's his resurrection that we are sharers in. He is life. We share in his resurrection But as he was raised body and spirit, so we are also to be raised body and spirit. The spirit part comes first, the body part comes on the last day. And that's what the writer is ultimately pointing to, is that last day at the parousia, 1 Corinthians 15, the appearing of Christ, now there is this renewal, this conflagration in which the creation itself, the material creation, will enter into its own renewal that Christ himself secured with his resurrection. And at that time, we too, in our bodies, our bodies as physical creation, will also be resurrected. That's why Paul says the creation is groaning, it's waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. What does he mean? We will be revealed as sons of God, as Christ is son of God, body and spirit in that day. And then the creation, when it sees that happen for us, it knows that its own renewal has come. This is Romans 8. And that is, again, what the Hebrews writer is referring to, that day when God will complete the creation's transformation, the day when everything that is, that is corrupted or broken or unstable or compromised, that which can be shaken, when it will be done away with or transformed, And this is interesting because even though, and and I'm reading out of the New American Standard, and even though it uses this language of removal, the term metathesis actually means a change that occurs in something. He, He used it earlier of the change of priesthood. Now you can say there was a doing away with the Levitical priesthood, but it wasn't doing away it was transformation and fulfillment, right? It wasn't abrogation, it was fulfillment. And he uses the same term with respect to uh, the translation of Enoch from an earthly mortal human form to his translation into you know, this ascension to heaven, however you want to think of that. That's the idea here. 
And why is that important? Because we tend to think in terms of all of this that we know is the time-space universe is all just going to be exploded and go away. And that's not what the writer's saying when he uses this language of removal. It's a doing away in the sense that the former order is done away. It's a full, comprehensive renewal. And this shaking imagery has really, you know, most clearly an earthquake kind of, it, it, it connotes that sort of idea of an earthquake. That's what happened at Sinai. And, and what a, that kind of shaking does is it exposes weakness. It exposes flaw. It exposes things that are weak or unstable. When an earthquake comes, you can tell which buildings are badly built, right? They fall down. They break apart. That kind of shaking uh, exposes and destroys what is unstable, compromised, poorly constructed. But there's another image also in this shaking thing that that I, I think is important to note. And that's this idea of a sieve. If you've ever gone and panned for gold or whatever, you know, or a, a sieve is something that you shake. And what do you shake it for? In order to separate that which is of value from that which is not of value. That's more the imagery in Haggai. God's going to shake the world in order to separate out and gather in its precious value. The precious value of the world. And I think both those images work together. God's shaking, and and as he says, uh, he's appointed another day in which he will shake not just the earth, but the heavens as well. It has two functions. The removing of the old creation by destroying that which is corrupt, but through this process of transformation and renewal. We can say of ourselves that God has destroyed us. He's destroyed the old man by this work of renewal. I live, but not I, but Christ lives in me. The old me has died. So this shaking serves the goal of the destruction of the old creation, not by blowing up and eliminating the time-space universe, but by renewing it. That's the second side of this, establishing and perfecting God's new creation, the destiny that he's appointed for that creation. Well, what's the point of all of that? Well, that understanding is fundamental then to what he says in verses 28 and, 20, or, yeah, 28 and 29. Therefore, Therefore, since we are receiving, he doesn't say we will receive, but we are even now in the reception of and living into and seeing the fruitfulness of a kingdom that endures, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Since we are receiving even now a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What does he call for in view of all of this that he's laid out, all of what I've even talked about today, ideas and themes that were very uh, well known by his Israelite readers? 
he calls for gratitude. That might seem strange in view of all he said. He's been talking about faithfulness, persevering in faith, holding fast, running your race. And now his climactic exhortation is be grateful. Be grateful. In light of all of this, be grateful. And a couple of points concerning that, he says, since we are receiving a kingdom, human beings are the focal point of this shaking that separates out what goes away and what remains. Human beings are the center of God's purpose in new creation. Because it has its centerpiece in Jesus, who is the last Adam, right? We talked about it so much. The, the whole kingdom theme in, in Genesis shows that God's design for the creation is that he will have his own relationship with it. He will be present in it. He will administer his lordship over it in and through human beings who are his image and likeness. I kind of joked before, we're not Jehovah's Witnesses, but we have to recognize our hope is very much an earthly hope. Our goal, our destiny, our future is not to have our spirits fly off to heaven. That itself is a place of longing, waiting, incompletion. Our human identity and vocation is to be image children who are vice regents, who administer God's lordship over the works of his hands. Human beings are at the center of God's new creation. Since we are receiving a kingdom, not God's going to bring a kingdom one day, we. We are already those who stand in the context of that kingdom. And it's a kingdom that cannot be shaken because it's the realization of God's purpose for his creation. This is not a millennium of of a thousand years or whatever. This is God's new creation. It has its origin and its substance in the Messiah. Paul says that the goal of God is to sum up everything in him. The kingdom doesn't just have a king, it really has its substance in the king, and ultimately the whole created order has its yes and amen in him. Well, two points that come out of that then, and this is kind of implied by what the writer's getting at. We are receiving a kingdom, therefore, the first thing that comes from this is that only the things, the entities, the realities that are bound up in the Messiah as God's consummate word, only those things will remain. If all things are summed up in the Messiah, only those things that are bound to him, that find their identity, their life, their, their, their functionality, all that they are in relation to him, only those things will remain. When he talks about a shaking to get rid of that which gets rid of, that, that which remains, remains, only those things that belong to the Messiah remain. The other side of that, the flip side of it, the second implication is that anyone who fails to hear him as God's consummate word, the fullness of God's 
disclosure, the fullness of who God is, or in any way turns away from him, will perish together with all that is false. This, isn't, this doesn't come down to, did Jesus die for my sins or did he not die for my sins? This comes down to, are you in the Messiah? You are either in him or you are not. And all that remains is in him, not just human beings, but the whole creation. In that way, God becomes all in all. That's what Paul says. Anyone who fails to hear God's consummate word, to hear the speaking of God from heaven, the word of God from heaven. In other words, this fulfilled now uh, dynamic that has Jesus sitting at the right hand of power. Whoever fails to hear or turns away from this realized truth will perish together with all that is false. That's the very essence of the writer's warning. He's reminding his Hebrew readers, you embraced Jesus of Nazareth, this prophet of Israel. You saw in him through the resurrection and through the testimony that's come to you, you saw in him that he is the Messiah, the one in whom all of these things that God had promised he was going to do, he has in fact done. And embracing him as that final word of God, you have been, become heirs of that kingdom, a kingdom that you already possess, a kingdom that you already inhabit, a kingdom that you are already a part of as sons raised up in him, seated in the heavenly realm in him. But that has an implication. You have to persevere in him. You have to live out that truth. As I said of faith, faith is bringing the future into the present. You have to live now in light of that which is to come, the fullness that is to come. In order to not be shaken on the day when God completes his work of new creation. These readers had an obligation to discern and to own in their minds, in their hearts, in their lives, in the way they went about their lives, who they were, what they had received in the Messiah, and what this was all moving towards. And in that way, they would become truly grateful people. And the writer doesn't say, be thankful for what you have. He says, become grateful people. This is gratitude as a way of being, not a response to circumstances. That's an important thing. Gratitude is a way of being, not a response to circumstances. And that kind of gratitude focuses on the God who has acted and triumphed in Jesus. It's a gratitude, the writer says, that is the basis of and will actually provoke reverence and awe a devotion that is a kind of almost on-your-face sort of overwhelming sense and devotion that that kind of gratitude will provoke. And I'm not saying it's wrong to be thankful for our earthly benefits, but being thankful for our earthly personal benefits does not itself provoke reverence and awe. Because to the extent that we normally are grateful for 
things under the sun were grateful to God as the instrument through whom they came. But the issue is the things. The issue is the circumstances. Thankfulness for personal benefit does not provoke reverence and awe. And obviously, if God is the center of this way of being, this gratitude is a way of life, then that sort of gratitude is limited only to those who know God in truth. And as Colin was even getting at a couple weeks ago, it should therefore be the fundamental characteristic of Christian existence. Not because God gives us good things, but because of who he is and what he has done and what we are a part of. It's fundamental, it's fundamental to our very existence as sons of God, and it's the basis and the essence of worship and acceptable service to God. There is no worship apart from gratitude. There is no service of God apart from gratitude. One of the closing points that the writer gets at in chapter 13, Hebrews, he says, through him then, through the Messiah, in view of all that I've told you, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Okay, what does that look like? It's the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. There's our marching orders. Gratitude. And gratitude, that, that's why I said at the outset, this kind of gratitude, not God, thank you for fixing this. God, thank you for giving me that. God, thank you for taking care of this problem. But the gratitude that is is recognizing this great God and what he has done and where this is all going and the graciousness and the goodness and the mercy of God in causing us to be sharers in it. That gratitude is essential to perseverance in faith, to not losing heart, to not being taken and distracted and led away by circumstances. The things that distract us, that confuse us, that perturb us, that frighten us. And I want to just conclude then with this last statement, because I think often um, this his, his concluding statement in here, and it's really kind of a, a further explanation or a further sort of because idea for our God is a consuming fire. It seems to come out of left field, and it doesn't seem to really fit the context all that well, but I would argue that it really does. I think what we tend to do, and, it's, and the writer has spoken in this way before, but the natural conclusion, and I looked at a lot of commentators on this, and, and more commonly than not, the understanding of this is that the writer is kind of giving a, a, like a, a final punctuated warning. Be grateful people. And, and offer a sacrifice of worship to God in reverence and awe. Because otherwise it's not going to go well for you. He's a consuming fire. 
Well, the writer is warning his readers against turning away from the Lord, but in a very positive sense. He's encouraging them, spurring them on, even by standing in solidarity with them. We are in this together. Since we, since we are receiving this sort of a kingdom, let us, let us. The writer understood that persecution, suffering, difficulty, hardship, all of these things tend to overshadow and muffle God's word, muffle the truth as it is in Christ, lead us away, cause us to look a different direction. They distract us from the truth. They distract us and lead us away. They tend to do that because of resentment because of fear, because of pain, because of preoccupation, because of relief-seeking. Circumstances of life tend to distract us and muffle God's word in our ears. And the writer is emphasizing again to his readers that their circumstance, rather than, in a sense, turning them away from hearing God, which is what circumstances, difficult ones, and sometimes even good ones. God said, when you get into the land and you eat of, uh, you know, crops you didn't plant and live in cities you didn't build and you're, you're filled and it's all good and it's wonderful, he said, you're going to forget me. And so good things can also cause us to stop hearing. But his point was that the the hard things, the things that you're dealing with, the circumstances that you're enduring should fill you with gratitude. Because those things that you're suffering are themselves the evidence that you are sons of the Son and heirs of his kingdom. We've talked about this over and over and over again. Their suffering of persecution is precisely because they are manifesting the life and likeness of Jesus in the world. They are suffering as he suffered. And so their tribulation should be a source of gratitude. It shows that they are truly sons of the Son. And they are receiving that kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that endures, that's already theirs, as they are raised up in the first fruits of a fullness that is yet to come. They should be grateful, not looking at their circumstances, as I said, not being grateful for how things look out here, but stepping back from how they look out here to who God is and what he's doing and what we're a part of, where this is going. That, I think, is the point of verse 29. Their gratitude should be full and steadfast because their God is a consuming fire. Since we inherit this kingdom, which cannot be shaken, let us be a grateful people because our God's a consuming fire. What's the point he's making? It was God's zeal that conquered the curse of sin and death and that inaugurated his kingdom under the rule of the ascended, resurrected, enthroned image son. That's Isaiah 9. A son shall be born to us, a son will be given, right? A child will be born, a son will be given. And the government will be on his shoulders, ruling over the throne of David and his kingdom forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish that. The zeal. The fire of the Lord will accomplish that. Well, what God had begun, he would surely complete. One day, the fire of God's zeal would consummate that all-encompassing work of shaking, winnowing, renewing, destroying, 
by consuming all that is false and purifying and transforming what is to remain. Yes, there is a downside, a very serious downside. As I said, all who will not embrace the truth as it is in Jesus are a part of that which is devoured. Nothing false will endure the fire of God's zeal. But the writer is encouraging them that in spite of all you're enduring, in spite of all that you see, our God is a consuming fire. He will, in the last day, manifest his zeal in a way that all will be winnowed, purified, restored, renewed. That was the word that was coming to them out of heaven. God's enduring living word that is the triumphant son seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's how the writer begins this epistle. And that one that they had embraced, that they had expressed their faith in, that one, he is the man, he is the man that they had embraced as the Messiah. And they needed to persevere into their, in that faith of him with grateful hearts. That's how gratitude is essential to persevering and thriving in faith. If we say gratitude is essential to faithfulness, people think, okay, what they hear us say is, I've got to take note of all the good things God has done for me and be thankful for them, and that will somehow help me to be a faithful person. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be mindful and aware and thankful for all the good little things that God does, but that's not the point the writer is making. This isn't about counting our blessings. This is about always remembering that we are sons who are receiving a kingdom and that what God has begun, he will bring to full fruition. Paul said in spite of all he was suffering... He was not discouraged. He did not lose hope. I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I've entrusted to him against that day. Living the Christian life isn't so much a matter of what we know, saints, although it is. But it's not what we know, it's how we think. The battle is in our minds. I say it all the time, but it's absolutely true. That's why Paul continues to reinforce to his, his readers in his epistles, have your heart and your mind fixed on the truth of what the Messiah has done and who you are in him. Because life's going to pull you into the pit. And things are going to pull against you and they're going to discourage you and they're going to yank you and pull you to and fro. And we need to grow up in all things into him who is the head. And that's an issue of how we think and what we understand and what we bind ourselves to. And that's how we have to help one another. Don't you know who you are? We're receiving a kingdom that cannot be moved. Nothing in this universe is static. Everything is in motion. And it seems like an ironic thing that we as human beings need something that's constant. And yet God's put us in a universe where nothing is constant. And we aren't even constant. Our cells are always doing stuff, right? Even when we're sleeping, we're not at rest. Everything is in motion. The one constant is God himself and his purposes. And that's where we find the settledness. 
That's what it is to be a grateful people. And that gratitude will carry us through the challenges and the difficulties of life. Father, I hope that this is very simple. It's certainly simple to talk about. Perhaps it's even simple for us to understand in our heads, but it is very difficult to live out. It's one thing to say, yeah, I get it. I, I, that's going to be what I'm committed to. I'm going to start being a grateful person. But even if we say I'm going to be a grateful person, the first time that the rock comes and hits us upside the head, all of that's going to evaporate. When the challenges, the trials, the confusion, the difficulties, the discouragements, the things of life that, that cause us to be resentful and, and miserable and agonized and agitated, the things that rob us of peace, when those things come, what will give us Persevering faith is remembering, remembering who we are, what our God is doing, where this is going. And then we can be, we can find just arising within our very spirits a gratitude that that transcends circumstances, transcends hardship, transcends the good and the bad. Then we can be worshipers with reverence and awe, then we can offer an acceptable service to our God in truth. Father, help us with these things because, again, even though the principles are very simple, the battle day by day is very difficult, and it depends on us taking every thought captive to the obedience of the truth as it is in Jesus our Lord. Give us that sort of discipline. Give us that sort of resource of mind and heart. May we walk out and grow in the mind of Christ. I pray that for each one here today, Father, and all of us have different struggles. All of us have different things we wrestle with, things that that throw us under the bus. And even for the young people here who perhaps don't even really know you in this way, But you don't have to be very old to understand that it's a very broken world with a lot of injustice, a lot of things that are wrong, a lot of things that ought not to be that way, a lot of things that can take us to a very dark place, to a very unhappy place. But the one who speaks from heaven the truth that comes to us from the Messiah throned at the right hand of power That's what we hold on to. Because one day our God, who is a consuming fire, will put all things right. Not burn up the universe, but purge and renew and perfect all things. That our God at last will be all in all. This is our hope. This is our peace. This is our joy. Cause it to be full for the sake of Christ's honor in the church in the world. Amen.